You can't believe everything you read on the internet, but sometimes it's hard not to resist falling for what has become known as fake news. Welcome to the Inside OSU podcast. I'm your host, Megan Robinson. In this week's episode, I speak with Matt Mata, an assistant professor of political science here at Oklahoma State University, who specializes in misinformation in the media. With the presidential election less than a month away, we felt now was the time to speak with Dr. Mata and have him educate us on how we can spot misinformation in the news and what we can do to combat it. Matt Mata, Assistant Professor of Political Science here at Oklahoma State University. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And before we get into sort of the political misinformation, because that is sort of relevant with this upcoming election, you explain to me what got you into studying misinformation. And it's a very interesting story. Can you please share that with our listeners? You and I were both from New England originally, and uh, I was camping in Lyme, Connecticut when I was in college, which the tick-borne illness disease is named for this place. Uh, it's where it was first discovered. And you know, when I, went, when I went camping, I ended up getting sick with Lyme disease, and I was very sick. I was, I was in the hospital for a little bit. It's a really nasty illness. And I was really upset afterwards about the idea that my dog could get vaccinated for Lyme disease and I couldn't. And I always just assumed, well, we don't have the technology yet. I was wrong. Because it turns out that in the late 1990s, we created, scientists created a safe and effective Lyme disease vaccine. The vaccine ultimately, though, was pulled from the market after just a couple of months, just a couple of years, because public demand was so low. And it was misinformation and skepticism about vaccine safety that ultimately led this safe and effective vaccine to be pulled from the market. And so I've always wanted to better understand why it is that people accept misinformation of all different varieties, especially public health and especially political misinformation. And then most critically asking the question that I think far too few ask, which is what can we do to combat misinformation and to put people on the side of reality science and the like. So you took this personal experience and then combined it with your love of politics and sort of turned it into covering misinformation in health and the media, correct? As a political scientist studying misinformation in a lot of different domains, such as public health and such as the environment, I think one of the questions I get asked the most is, are, are you really a political scientist? And then 2020 happened, and I don't think I'll ever be asked this question again. We are in the middle of conducting our first pandemic uh, election since 1918. Everything feels different this year. Misinformation about public health as it relates to politics in the election abounds. But it was rough going at first trying to convince people, hey, public health misinformation, environmental misinformation, these are inherently political questions that have political and policy consequences. And how prevalent is misinformation in the news? And have you seen it more this last year with the pandemic and the election than you have years prior? Both with respect to how many Americans accept misinformation and with respect to how much misinformation there is out there, uh, the answer is, is yes to both. There's a lot of Americans who are misinformed and there's a lot of misinformation out there on social media. 
And on occasion, that misinformation gets picked up by conventional news outlets and potentially risks mainstreaming that information. So we know from public opinion research, for example, that the QAnon conspiracy theory, a very popular in some segments of the internet conspiracy, alleging uh, that very powerful actors such as Hillary Clinton were involved in a child sex trafficking ring and that only President Trump has the ability to put an end to it. This conspiracy was something most Americans hadn't heard of just a couple of months ago. But as the conspiracy started gaining steam on social media, as we started to see House candidates, for example, running under the banner of QAnon, mainstream press picked it up. What happened after they did? Well, lo and behold, even though the press weren't necessarily sharing misinformation themselves, simply alerting people to the possibility that exists, all of a sudden, we're in a position now, whereas as of two weeks ago, 50% of Americans have heard about this conspiracy theory. And if people hear about these conspiracy theories, you risk the possibility that some people end up believing them. You know, one of the things that we can talk about is this idea that when the mainstream press recirculates misinformation, even in an effort to potentially debunk it, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to follow suit and fail to hold those misinformed beliefs themselves. And you mentioned conspiracy theories. Can you elaborate on the difference between misinformation and conspiracy theories, but also how they relate to each other? We need to think about information and ignorance as being on a spectrum. And I mean ignorance here not as a pejorative. One of the things I tell my students is that ignorance is a term we use to refer to the lack of information about a topic, information of any kind. Informedness is on the other end. This is holding correct factual information about a particular topic. And then in between those two poles, that's where misinformation lies. There's many different flavors of misinformation that we can talk about, but generally speaking, people are misinformed if they fail to hold accurate views, so they're not informed, but they're also not ignorant. They hold some pieces of information about a particular topic, but that information isn't necessarily right. Conspiracy theories are a variety of misinformation wherein people believe that lots of secret and powerful government, business, political actors are conspiring together in order to hurt ordinary people like you and me. But that's not the only variety of misinformation that's out there. We can also talk about misperceptions. We know that people tend to think that the economy is doing better, for example, when their party is in power in the White House. Even if we agree on what the GDP rate is, even if we agree on what the unemployment rate is, we think about it as being comparatively better when our side is in power. So that's an example of misperceptions. And then we just kind of have a catch-all misinformation category. Anytime you hold views that are factually inaccurate or debunked that don't fit neatly into one of those two categories, we might say that people are misinformed. We need to think about misinformation as being somewhere in between ignorance and informedness, and there's a lot of different varieties of it. I was reading through your PowerPoints that you use in class, and one of the things that really stood out to me was headlines. And I see it all the time on social media. People share stories because the headline is just 
so out there and so bonkers, but they're not really reading the articles. They're just caught off guard by this insane headline. So how prevalent are headlines in sharing and spreading misinformation? One really well-established finding in this line of research is that when we see headlines that tell us what we want to believe, we are more likely to share them with others, believe that information without necessarily taking the next step to click on it and see whether or not it was actually true. And there was an example of this that, that went viral uh, a couple of years ago on April Fool's Day, I believe, wherein NPR shared an article telling readers that it's a shame that too few Americans are reading and going to libraries these days. And if you're the type of person who thinks, wow, you know, these kids really just don't read anymore. That was all you needed to start commenting on it and sharing it with friends. But if you actually then clicked on the article about people not reading, you would ironically find out that it was a joke that had no text in it, aside from alerting people to the fact that too many people don't read these days. Uh, and so that's a very valuable lesson. And so we as consumers of news, as people on social media, have to be very vigilant and self-policing about the fact that we might uncritically consume and share information as long as we agree with it. It seems as though misinformation is typically spread unintentionally because you want to believe what you're seeing. And so you're sharing these articles, these news, whatever it may be. It, it happens all the time. One of the things that we talked about in my course on misinformation here at OSU is the psychology of misinformation. Why it's so much easier to find fault with things we disagree with than it is things we agree with. But that's very much has something to do with the way that, that our brains are, are structured. And, and one thing I like to stress with my students and I think is an important life lesson is that you and I have both shared and believed misinformation. The sooner we can be humble about the fact that we are on occasion, believe it or not, wrong about some things, I think the sooner we can start to make corrections ourselves and perhaps the easier time we can have talking with other people who may be misinformed or sharing misinformation about what they might do differently to avoid making those mistakes in the future. So now that we've sort of established how misinformation gets out there and the impact of it, how do we combat misinformation? So there's, there's really two classes of things we can do. The first is what you as a consumer can do. And then the second is how you can have productive conversations with others who might share misinformation. I like to use this mnemonic, these three C's that I think can help combat misinformation acceptance. The first, perhaps the most obvious, is click beyond the headline. Before you share a story, any story, even if it seems pretty solid that it's likely to be true, click on it to make sure that it actually makes sense, that it includes, for example, links to sources that aren't anonymous, that can be verified in some way, that the content of that piece matches up with reality. The second is to corroborate what you see with external sources. Okay, so you read one article that tells you a, a attention-grabbing claim. Are other websites making this claim? Are other reputable news outlets making this claim? How do you determine who's reputable? Well, 
Who's linking to original sources that you can document? Who's providing additional information about the sources that they cite, as well as the claims that they make? So try to make an effort, especially if something seems too good to be true or highly attention grabbing, to look at other sources and, and try to corroborate. And then the final thing you can do, and something that I think we have as a very unique resource here at Oklahoma State, is to consult with experts. You know, talk to your professors if you're a student. Talk to your colleagues if you're an instructor. I love chatting with my colleagues in political science about political events. And, and sometimes I might be, and I'll admit to being, ready to accept information that actually needs a few qualifications. Making sure to check with other people is, I think, a really important thing you can do. The second part of this is how can you have productive conversations with others? If you see someone on your timeline sharing misinformation, how can you say, hey, I, I think that's wrong. I, I, uh, you ought not share this with, with other people. And the, the perhaps most intuitive way to do this, to tell people you're wrong and here's why, is actually among the least effective. There are some studies suggesting that you might be able to temporarily change people's minds about whether or not what they shared was true, but that doesn't stop them from believing it and it doesn't even necessarily stop them from sharing that. So a more productive way to have conversations with people who share misinformation is to try to assess where it is they're coming from and use that knowledge, thinking like the other person, to try to find common ground. This is a difficult thing to do, right? It means that we have to think like the other person and try to admit uh, some amount of humility and, and try to find common ground. But if we can do that, I think we can be much more successful at combating misinformation. And I think to your point, especially now in these times with the election coming up, there's so much political news out there. You see it all over social media and people just having their opinions and refusing to change their ways. And I think that it comes from both sides. To your point, I think if we kind of all treat each other with a little more respect and try to put ourselves in the other person's shoes, we might be able to combat this a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I know that that can be very difficult to do. And, you know, that's no one's fault. But if we're able to move past it and just do it, I think that we'll be much more successful at convincing people to not share misinformation. And now we've mentioned the upcoming election several times today. Mm -hmm. That's less than a month away. How influential do you think misinformation is going to be to voters on the fence of this election? By and large, most Americans have made up their minds about how they plan to vote in 2020. Most made up their minds in late spring and barely anything has moved the needle since then. And, and early indicators right now suggest that while misinformation will be a factor, while it will be shared on social media and, and while people will believe it, social media companies have taken legitimate and I think effective action to try to stop the spread of misinformation. Because while we've talked so far about the things that you can do as a consumer and as a friend of people who share misinformation, social media companies can try to limit the supply of misinformation as well. However, just because misinformation is being shared a bit less on Facebook doesn't necessarily mean that fewer people believe it. Even though misinformation's spread may be in decline 
on some platforms. A number of Americans believe it, and that can have important political consequences. When we talk about the public being misinformed and the potential consequences that can have, we think that misinformation is a problem if people take action on it. If lots of Americans were misinformed about something, but it didn't change the way they thought about politics, I don't think I would need to teach a class on it. I think that that is such a strong point that it's not the misinformation, it's how people react and what they do with that misinformation that can be problematic. Right. And to that point, what's scarier to you, the amount of misinformation that is released or the amount of people who actually believe all of that? I'm never someone who's going to be immediately concerned about this particular conspiracy theory that cropped up on one dark corner of the internet. I want to know how many people believe it. And then, of course, the first question I would ask after that is, what is the relevance of this to politics? So in a, in a paper that my colleagues and I published earlier this year, we found that a lot of Americans are misinformed about very basic matters pertaining to their personal health. There are a lot of people who, for example, believe that going outside with wet hair can cause you to catch the cold. That's not true. The cold virus causes you to catch the cold. <laughs> uh, but a lot of people believe it. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because if it means that people aren't going outside with wet hair, if it means that people are being more careful, you know, heck, in this case, the misinformation might actually be doing some good, right? Now, we show in the paper that there are some deleterious effects of, of believing it. What is the connection between this piece of misinformation and something we care about? When it comes to mail ballot fraud, for example, the connections are quite clear. If that leads to people, and especially if it leads to a partisan asymmetry in who decides to request mail-in ballots, some people's voices might not be heard. I would say that I am much more concerned about the prevalence of misinformation with the caveat that some pieces are gonna be more readily connected to politics and public health than others. Is there any final advice you have for Americans out there who are trying to get information on any new updates with the coronavirus or on the election? Any sources that you recommend they go to for information that you know is going to be informed and not inaccurate? We have scholarly fields of experts who have devoted their professional lives to studying these topics. On coronavirus, listen to doctors and medical scientists. The same thing is true for politics as well. There are lots of nonpartisan think tanks, for example, who have devoted their professional lives to studying issues related to whether or not many fraudulent ballots are actually cast in elections. And for those of you who aren't just consumers, but those of you who are supplying information, such as researchers and instructors and professors who might be listening to this, this is why I think it's so important for us to do outreach about our research. We have the unique opportunity to tell the public, hey, you know, you, you invested in me and my research. Here's what I found. And to contribute to public discussion of the facts. And most critically, to present those facts in a way that people can understand, as opposed to simply sharing on email chains the latest nature or science article with our colleagues. Both of those things are important, but making time to reach out to people and to 
talk in terms that you know, we ourselves might not use in lab meetings that we think would help facilitate comprehension of our research. I think that's critically important. Interested in learning more about misinformation in the media? Then register for Dr. Mata's public opinion and polling class this spring. And if you're interested in hearing more Inside OSU podcasts, be sure to like, share, and subscribe. I'm Megan Robinson, and thank you so much for tuning in.